First Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18 and going to the end of the chapter. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the overbearing. For one is approved, if mindful of God, he endures pain while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you do wrong and are beaten for it, you take it patiently? But if when you do right and suffer for it, you take it patiently, you will have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No guile was found on his lips. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he trusted to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You who were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. If you're a Christian this morning, God has called you to suffer unjustly. And that's what I want to talk about. It's your vocation. It's not to be surprised. It's normal to be mistreated, to be abused. This is your calling. Let me give you two reasons why I want to talk about this. The first is that it seems to me that a lot of people today Christians included justify their anger and their critical spirit by pointing to the wrongs that have been done to them. In other words, a lot of people, if you point out to them that they seem to have an undue sense of anger or bitterness or critical spirit or a slanderous attitude, they immediately tell you how badly they've been treated. As though... There's some kind of connection there from a Christian standpoint that they've been let down. They've been hurt. It's obvious why they're acting the way they are. So it seems that there's a automatic, deeply rooted sense that if I've been mistreated, if I've been hurt, if I've been let down, well, they deserve to be shown that. And their words deserve to come back on their own heads. And they deserve to be brought to justice. And therefore, it belongs to me. I have the right to make sure that happens. That seems just to be in the air. And I don't find many people who, when they are hurt and when they are let down, and disappointed and mistreated say, yes, I have been unjustly hurt. Yes, I have been let down. Yes, I have been mistreated. Yes, they deserve to be shown up and brought to justice and rebuked. But no, I won't be bitter 
And no, I won't retaliate. And no, I won't criticize. And no, I won't slander. And no, I won't speak evil. I will return good for evil. I will bless those who persecute me. I will pray for those who abuse me. I will do good to those who hate me. And so it just seems to me as I look at my own heart and as I look at the world that we need to recover the deep, profound biblical teaching that Christians are called. Mark this now. It is your vocation to be mistreated and take it without bitterness, without planning vengeance even, without seething that the other person should get it. It's your calling to experience unjust hurt in your life. I want to say from the outset that this is not merely a rule to follow. This is a miracle to be experienced. This is a grace to be received. I said there was another reason why I want to talk about it. The other reason is personal. They're almost the same, but just standing in front of the mirror that I am desperately in need. Of growing in this grace. And I use the word desperately without exaggeration because the desperation of my own life sort of rises and falls according to circumstances and times and situations and relationships, but it's there. I don't think that I and Noel can survive as husband and wife without this grace. I don't think that I and my sons can survive without this grace. I don't think that I can survive as the pastor of this church without this grace. I don't think that I can survive as a crusader in the world for righteousness and truth without this grace. I am desperate for this in my life. I will not survive the ministry without it. And so if nothing else, put it on your prayer list for me. If, if you've got it sewed up, then I don't, and I need your prayer. It would be very hard for me to overstate to you how strongly I feel about this this morning. My life, the life of our church, the evangelical movement, marriages, parenting, friendships, Employment stability, ministry in the church of every kind and every level, perseverance in fighting for social justice, surviving and hanging in there with effectiveness and fruitfulness depends on this grace more than most people realize. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that my family and my ministry And my role in the evangelical movement is over if I don't have this grace. So I hope you will join me this morning in taking very seriously what this text says. Let's begin at verse 19. First Peter chapter two, verse 19. One is approved. If. Mindful of God or conscious of God, 
He endures pain. And it's very interesting that that word implies mental anguish and grief, not physical. Everywhere it's used in the New Testament. While suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you do wrong, you are beaten for it and you take it patiently? That's pretty good, but it's nothing special. But if when you do right, you suffer for it. Those two words, by the way, are not in the text. For it, that's not in the original. And so there's a much looser connection here. Just when you do right, you suffer. That broadens out the significance of this text. If when you do right, you suffer, you take it patiently, then you have God's approval. For to this you have been called. It's your calling. Now let's let this sink in. This is the most awesome text. When you do right, you suffer. When you do right, you'll be criticized. When you do right, things won't go better, necessarily. We have ingrained in our minds, if I do right, they go better. Right? Wrong. If you do right, comes back in your face. Sometimes. Oftentimes. And it's your calling. It's not a surprise. It's normal. It's the vocation of a Christian. It comes back in your face. When you do right, not wrong, right, when you do right, someone will say a hurtful thing to you. When you do right, people may not even notice. That may be the worst of all. Zero, zilch, black hole, nothing. And yet there are so many of us who act as though hurt And abuse, when we do right, is absolutely intolerable. This will not happen to me. Right? It's just kind of built in this strong, deep, emotional force. It's my right and indeed my duty to not let that happen to me again. Or to get back at you. Or to say the words that will show you up, too. It's just built right in that if I get ignored, boy, they're going to get ignored. If I get put down, they're going to get put down. If they say that to me, I'm going to say that back to them. Because it isn't right and they deserve to be shown to be wrong and I therefore have the right to show them wrong. There is a, a moral structure right there that's destructive to the core. How many of us live in the liberating knowledge, and it is liberating, I hope you feel it before we're done, the liberating knowledge that it's your vocation to suffer with Jesus and be misunderstood and be hurt and have nobody, maybe, even know it, but God. Now, quickly, lest anybody say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This text only has to do with servants and masters. It doesn't even apply to us. 
Would you go with me to chapter 3, verse 8 and 9? I just want to remove that obstacle to understanding and agreement right now by showing you that Peter, who carries this whole theme through his letter, is applying it not just to servants and masters, but to all of us in the Christian community. We'll start at verse 8, chapter 3. Finally, all of you, not just servants, all of you, have unity of spirit, sympathy, love of the brethren, a tender heart, humble mind. And here it is. Do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, notice, for to this you all have been called. All Christians. This is your calling. This is your vocation. You are called to be reviled. You are called to suffer. You are called to be hurt. You are called to be ignored. You are called to be misunderstood and mistreated and to take it without revenge. That's your calling. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's the nature of your vocation. It's a calling to every person who trusts in Jesus. Verse 21, now back to chapter 2, to show you why it's our calling. Chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called, it is called to be hurt for doing right, and to bear it without bitterness or revenge, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, I want you to see what's happening here. The suffering of Jesus has two things going on, not just one thing. Two things are going on when Jesus suffered. Let's take them one at a time. They're both awesome. The first thing that's going on when Jesus suffered is that he suffered for you. Which means that he took your sin and all of its deserved condemnation onto himself And he let himself be crucified so that all the condemnation due to you for your sin and me to my sin would come down on his own head and crush him into hell so that it wouldn't have to be yours. And so the first thing that's happening when Jesus suffered is that all of your suffering is being transformed out of condemnation and into fatherly discipline. I said that last week. One man got it. Because he stopped and talked to me about it afterwards. I'll say it again this week. The glory, the first glory of the suffering of Jesus for me is that all the mistreatment of my life, all the misunderstandings of my life, all the hurt that comes into my life is never again the condemnation of God. Never. Not one millisecond of hurt in my life is a condemnation from my Father in heaven. Because Jesus bore it all, and it would dishonor the cross if the Father poured it on me as well as Him. What is it then? It is not condemnation for my destruction. It is discipline for my holiness. And it's all love. It's all love. That's the first thing that's happening when Jesus suffered. My suffering is not divine condemnation. It is divine calling. 
The second thing that was happening when Jesus suffered found not in the words for you, but later on in the sentence, in the words, as an example, shows that what was happening when when he suffered was to put some footprints down for me to walk in. Namely, footprints to the cross and through all the suffering that he went through. You know, there's some people who have a theology that says because he suffered, I shouldn't. The Bible says... He died for me so that I would suffer like him. You got that? He suffered for me so that I would suffer like him. That means without bitterness, without retaliation, without revenge. Verse 22 and 23 spelled out. Let's read it. He committed no sin. No guile was found on his lips. In other words, he did right. He didn't deserve to suffer. 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't even threaten. So this is our calling, Peter says, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not to plan to hurt back, not to seethe with bitterness because you can't plan to hurt back. So you can see... If you're taking this seriously with me this morning, you can see this is not a mere rule to be kept. This is a miracle to experience. This is a grace to be received. It's the only way that marriages can survive and flourish. Spouses can hurt each other worse than anybody else, right? How many are consumed day and night with indignation, justified self-pity? And numbing frustration that they are doing right and all they get is pain. Right? It's the only answer. So where does this miracle come from? How does the grace get channeled to us? First, let me give you the overarching answer and then and then the. Specific application to experience the overarching answer to where the grace comes from and how does the miracle happen is found in verse 19 in a little phrase, absolutely crucial phrase. Let's look at it. Verse 19. One is approved if now let's check out the translations here. Mine says the RSV mindful of God. This is the answer. This phrase is the answer. It's the most important phrase in the book. Mindful of God, or probably better, conscious of God, he endures pain. The miracle happens in your life. The grace comes down on your life when you are conscious of God. When you reckon with God, when God becomes the third member in the relational equation. When you think about God and look to God and take God seriously, the source of this miracle that we're talking about this morning is God. And the channel of the miracle is consciousness of God, awareness of God, riveting on God, taking God seriously, knowing that he is as real as this hurt right now that I'm experiencing. He's just as real. That is the answer. But that's only the overarching general way of stating it. To see how it's the answer, we have to get more specific. 
and ask, all right, if I have the grace now that in the midst of this hurt, I now have God as present and real as the other person and the hurt, and he's here, what am I supposed to think about it? What's he doing? What's he feeling? What's going to happen? Why does he make a difference? The answer is given in verse 23. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, he had the accusers and the herders. They were standing there in front of him. One thrust the sword in his side. They spit on him. They pushed thorns down on his head. He was perfect. He didn't deserve any of that. Everything in him, had he been a mere natural man, would have raged against them. And there was a third person. There was the accuser. There was Jesus. And there was his father. Now, what did he what did he do? How did the father make a difference? Let's read verse 23. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now, here is here's the answer. But. He trusted to him who judges justly. Now, let's let's check the translations here again, because I really want you with me on this right down to the specific words. The NIV and the NASB go beyond the text when they say he entrusted himself. The word himself is not in the original. It limits the text too much to put that in there. Of course, he entrusted himself, but that's not what the text says. The text says he handed over to God who judges justly. It doesn't say what he handed over. What did he hand over? He handed over his accusers. He handed over his hurt. He handed over their motives. He handed over everything to God. Because he couldn't do a thing. He handed it over. To God. And what he thought about God was. He'll settle it justly. See that? The God who judges justly. I wish I could, I wish I could just, by some miracle, put this in your heart, that God is so real in your relationships, that uh, He never misses any wrong done to you. Never once. He knows lots of them you don't, probably. And that it makes all the difference in the world to leave it to him. Jesus handed over the whole situation to God. He trusted to God. And therefore he said, I think he said something like this. I will not carry the burden of revenge. I will not carry the burden of sorting out the motives of these people. I will not carry the burden of self-pity. I will not carry the burden of bitterness. I will hand it over to my father, the judge of all the earth, who will do right. And I will pray, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In other words, I will take all the crushing, ugly resentment and bitterness and self-pity. And I will give it to my father and I will be free. It's the only way you'll love your enemy. Is the only way you'll love your enemy, including your husband or your wife or your children. 
It's the only way is to hand every bit of it over to God and believe that he's there. And he is. This is your calling this morning. And it's not merely a rule to be obeyed. It's a miracle to be experienced and a grace to be received and a promise to be believed. Do you believe that God sees everything in your life? Do you believe that God knows every hurt? Do you believe that he assesses motives far more accurately than you could? Do you believe that he is impeccably righteous? Do you believe that he will settle all accounts in perfect justice someday and not one thing will be swept under the rug? Not one little teeny split second bad word will be swept under the rug of this universe. It will either be settled on the cross or it'll be settled in hell and you can't improve upon the justice of God. Not one little bit by anything you do. Do you believe that? It's a faith issue this morning. It's a faith issue. If you believe this, if God is this real to you, then you will hand it over to him. And though nobody in the world may understand why you're as peaceful and as happy and as hopeful as you are, God knows. God's the reason they will know. Let me close with two illustrations of how this works out in situations, two kinds of situations. First, the hurt uh, that you experience when the good you do is not noticed or appreciated. The hurt that you experience when the good that you do is not noticed or appreciated. Parents who never say or said, good job, no matter how hard the kid tried, never said, good job. It's the black hole of parenthood. Children who never thank mom for thousands of meals and rides and laundries never say a word. How does a mom survive? Husbands and wives who long ago stopped saying to each other, eyeball to eyeball, I love you. I'm so glad I married you. Thanks for all you do. Just a black hole. Nobody notices. Nobody says anything. You know what the answer to that is? God. God. God is the answer. Listen to this. Matthew 6, 4, Jesus says, Your father who sees in secret, will reward you. It's a God issue. It's a God issue. It's a God issue. It's a God issue. That's the way you'll survive when every effort of love disappears in a black hole. It's a God issue that will keep you smiling. It's a God issue that will keep you hopeful and happy and resourceful and flowing and flowing and flowing to the day you die when nobody says thank you. It's a God issue. You can bring more glory to your God by pressing on in thankless love than you can by any other means. But it's a God issue. That's why I said mindful of God in verse 19 is the most important phrase in the book. Conscious of God, 
Are we conscious of God? So often I find myself not even thinking about God when I get angry at somebody. Of course I'm going to get angry. i got no resources. It's me and them and justice to be done. God's gone. He's out of the world. And I'm just pleading with you to figure God back into the equation this morning. And to figure him first on this illustration as the one who sees in secret and rewards you. Mark this now. We're sinners, okay? No problem. We're sinners. We do lots of bad things. They will be covered in the cross. But we do lots of good things. The Bible says God is not so unjust as to overlook your good deeds. Hebrews chapter 6. You do good things. Everybody in this room does good things if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, you try to do good things and they get contaminated by unbelief. If you're a believer, you do lots of good things. God writes down every one of them in his book. Every single one is kept in a book. It doesn't matter if nobody else in the world, children, spouses, parents, grandparents, colleagues, friends, roommates, never say a word. God writes it down and therefore you can go to your room. Get down on your knees and say, Father, of all the audiences in the world that I would like to have, you're the most important. And I want to thank you that you noticed and that you approved. And I love you and I need you and I trust you. And would you grant me the grace now? To be free from self-pity and move on and love. God is the answer, folks. God is the answer. One last illustration. Namely, the hurt that you experienced, not so much when you are ignored or the good that you do disappears into a black hole, but when the good that you do comes back in your face, is twisted, is is persecuted. Someone lies about you at work and you lose your job and it's totally unjust. Totally unjust. Or you confide in someone and bare your soul and they turn it against you. They reject you. Or For the first time in your life, prayerfully, meekly, you sit down in front of an abortion mill in Fargo and you get thrown in the Bismarck State Penitentiary for nine months as a Bethel College student. That's where Karen Sorensen is. Uh, if, if you disapprove of that, if you hold that thing up, David will be out there at the table with a petition to the governor, and we're just going to send some names. I don't know if it'll do any good, but at least we can say, we don't think that's just. That's not a good decision, Judge. So if you want to sign it, it'll be out there on the table. Or David Buck, he's in jail right now in uh, Wichita. How do you survive and go on loving people when your deep 
judicial sense says, no, it isn't right. This can't be tolerated. It's not fair. And the answer is God. Romans 12. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. And if your enemy is thirsty, you give him drink. Don't you swear at him. Don't you kick him. Don't you write nasty letters about him. You love him. Bless him. Pray for him. And I will be the avenger. It's a God issue. Do you trust God? Do you trust God with the justice of your life? You do what Jesus did. He handed over to him who judges justly. Nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing falls from his memory. He settles accounts with absolute justice, and so we can lay it down. So here's what it all boils down to, and I close. Remember God. I just can't say it any more simply. Remember God. Remember God. Be conscious of God. Trust God. God will reward you for all the right things that you have done when nobody else knows them. And God will avenge you for all the wrong that has been done to you when nobody else knows them. So that now, if you believe this God, if he's real to you, if you are conscious of him, if you bank on him, then you can be done with self-pity. And I just invite you, I plead with you, leave the yoke and the burden of life-ruining self-pity on these benches when you walk out this morning. You'll see the sky in a new way. I'm reading a novel right now called City of Joy. Self-pity ruins life. You can't see anything. You can't see beauty. You can't see people. You can't do anything wholesome or feel large feelings. Nothing noble comes out of your life. And you're just groveling down there, getting right, getting even. So just leave that on the bench when you leave. Because God will reward you for everything you've ever done good when nobody else has noticed. And it's going to be good. You'll wonder at that day, why did I ever feel sorry for myself? And the second is, God sees every wrong that's ever been done to you. And he will either forgive that by crushing his son for it, in which case you surely wouldn't want to take it into your own hands and say, I can do better than Jesus did when he bled, when he bled for that sin. I can vindicate myself better than Jesus vindicated me by dying. You would never want to say that. Or, if the person does not believe, he will put them in hell and they will burn forever and ever and ever for the sin against you. And you would not want to take that into your hand either. It's going to be settled, folks. And you can lay on the bench as you leave this morning the yoke of self-pity and the yoke of bitterness and vengeance and walk out of here free men and free women and free children and have brand new relationships with your spouse and your children and your parents and your colleagues. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, it may be that some would feel drawn at the end of this service now to come to the front when we're leaving.
find one of the prayer teams who will be standing here and lay the burden at their feet. And just ask them to help pray it off. These are not easy things. It is a miracle to be experienced. It is a grace to be received. It cannot be done in our own strength. So I go back to where I began. I'm a desperate pastor. I long to be in the ministry a long time. I long to stand for the truth in a corrupt and crooked generation for a long time. I long to be a good father and a good husband. And I pray for this grace in Noel and in me, in my sons, Karsten and Benjamin and Abraham and Barnabas, and in me. I pray for it in the lives of David Livingston and David Michael and Tom Steller and Dean Palermo and Joan Lovestrand and Brad Nelson and Dan Lane and all of the office assistants. Lord, without this grace, we are nothing. We are just like the world. We don't want to be like that. So I ask you to cause us to leave it on the bench when we leave. Make us new. Make us free. And all the people said, Amen.